Liz. Hey, Beth. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well. I know you're excited because we're finally revisiting the Pam Hupp story, or should I say the thing about Pam miniseries this week? Yes, I, I am excited. I will admit this is a story, as I said last time we talked about it, I have been fascinated with from the beginning. Um, it really helps, though, that Robert Patrick is such a delight to talk to, and he's here with us today. Hello. Hello. Thank Hi, you for Bob. the kind words. <laughs> <laughs> and also an expert. You covered the Pam Hup story from the very beginning through to its most recent updates. Uh, so while Beth and I are definitely watching from the sidelines and have for many years, I feel like you're the kind of the expert voice for us. Almost from the beginning. But yeah, it's been <laughs> years and years of Pam Hup related. Stuff. I will say, I believe you have been covering the case longer than Dateline. Uh, yes. Yes. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, I think we are going to go ahead and get, get you started. Get me started then. We're, we're um, taping this a little bit later than usual in the week because we wanted to have the finale of the miniseries, The Thing About Pam. Um, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, so you can go ahead and go back and listen to that if you aren't familiar with the story. I really don't want to rehash the story today because that will take a lot of time. It has a lot of twists and turns. So let's move on to kind of reaction to the miniseries and also some of the family's reaction to the miniseries, which I think is really important because it was a fictionalized version of this story that had such a deep impact on so many lives of people who live here in our area. We, I know people who were involved in this case kind of tangentially, and I'm sure that some people listening know others who were involved in this case. What was the reaction? Well, I think Janet Meyer probably summed it up best. That is, that is um, uh, Betsy's mother. And I asked her <clears throat> what she thought about the miniseries. So here, here goes. This is Janet. Everyone we know thinks it was a slap in the face of our family. And after watching last night's performance, the Gumpenberger's family, Gumpenberger family as well, terrible shots of his murder, hoping they were not watching. The series was filmed in poor taste and with no respect for our families. Every quote by myself and Leah and Mariah did not happen. We never talked or phoned her. I think that is what bothers our family the most. They never checked with us before filming and just said what they wanted or made up the scenes. It showed Pam Hupp as a friendly person, and she was not. And obviously, in a fictionalized version of true crime, creators are going to take... Um, Liberties. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> They are. I think that, you know, what Janet Meyer's statement drove home to me, though, as just as a viewer watching it, and certainly one who is far less down the rabbit hole, say, a reporter like Robert, uh, or or even the producers of Dateline, one would think, (laughs) was how little I learned about Betsy Faria, about Louis Gumpenberger, about Russ Faria, really the, you know, the victims of Pam Hupp, who you would you would argue deserve the most representation in this story. They lost their lives. Uh, and instead, we learn quite a lot about Pam Hub. One episode volleys between current day, or at the time current day, and her kind of high school years through to her first through her first marriage and into the early years of her second marriage. And we don't get any of that for these victims. Right. We don't get any of that. Betsy Faria's entire character is a woman who has cancer who is like oh sure Pam I guess you can take me home and that's really like honestly Mm -hmm. one of our only lines Uh, and family members are represented in ways that 
obviously they don't agree with. And even Louis Gumpenberger's family, before the miniseries aired, their attorney came out and said, we're not getting anything out of this. They're, they weren't, they're not getting any you know, portion or percentage of... Yeah, no consulting on his story. No consulting on his story and no percentage of the, the profits from airing this. So there's just so many questions about how to treat families who have gone through this incredibly traumatic, horrible event, especially when you're taking it and you're fictionalizing it, which makes it seem a little bit more um, exploitive. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've talked about this in the first episode, like you mentioned, Beth, of the podcast, right after the series had debuted. And in the the weeks before that, uh, Betsy Fria's youngest child, Mariah, had uploaded some TikTok videos sharing her views before the series again had aired and kind of her thoughts. And one that really resonated with me was this idea that the family members and the friends of these victims, they have to keep reliving these horrors when things like this air. And to know that they're not even being portrayed accurately or fairly or represented equally to other people, Pam Hop, within the story, I can only imagine how, you know, upsetting and traumatizing that is. And Mariah actually said something really eloquent on her TikTok um, where I'm going to go ahead and quote what she what she said uh, to many families. It is a tragedy and it's something that they have to reprocess every time they see it in the media like those are some of my darkest days. So while you're so intrigued with these true crime stories and murderers, just remember that someone lost their mother, their brother, their sister, someone lost a part of their family, and they're still grieving. I, I just think that's so important. Like we can be fascinated by this story and we can want to read a lot about this story. That's an, a different level than let's take the story and make it fictional and broadcast and sensationalized. Yeah, it. I mean, to me and Robert, I think you probably even better than me can speak to this. There is a difference between reporting news, reporting news that our readership, our audience needs to know, has a, a right to know. And then there is something else like the thing about Pam, uh, which takes a lot of, again, liberties with these stories, liberties the journalists would never take, uh, that really, you know, hangs its hat on Dateline's reporting. And even though, to, to your point, you know, local reporters were on this case much sooner than Dateline producers. But the everything from the Keith Morrison narration, which is a through line in the show, mm-hmm. uh, to keep referencing Dateline producers, producer Kathy gets referenced quite a bit throughout the series. It really feels more like an opportunity to promote the work of Dateline than it does to serve the victims of this terrible, terrible person, I'll well, say. And I think, I think it's potentially really problematic when you do that based on a true story because the story's too long at this point we talked about this last time it's Mm -hmm. too long for one newspaper article basically it's way too long for a dateline episode i don't care whether it's two hours or three (laughs) hours or something like that and they've done i mean the third they've they've done a ton there's there's one coming friday so um but then but then your choice is okay do we do a documentary or do or do this based on thing and Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's sort of a Hollywood thing where like we're going to get more eyeballs if we do based on miniseries versus a documentary. I mean, that's probably yeah, that's, Renee that probably plays starring. into it, right? Right. But yeah. then, but then, okay, you made that creative decision to go based on. I almost feel like it should come with some sort of, you know, the TV equivalent of footnotes where it says, "Here's where we departed from this," mm-hmm. and you know, because you owe it to the you owe it to the viewers, and you've got space for it. You know, put it in the credits or something like that. People can freeze frame it if they want. I mean, one of the things, and I didn't know if this should bother me as much as it did, but one of the things that really bothered me about their treatment of it was their fa- was the fact that they were inserting Dateline 
into this thing where Dateline was not present. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, yes. they were, they had Kathy Singer, who's a very, very nice person, good producer. Um, I sat with her during the second trial. She and was Kathy Singer is a Dateline producer. Dateline producer, and she's the one that that Pam Hupp was going around pretending. I mean, mm-hmm. she Pam Hupp was pretending to be Kathy Singer at one point, but Kathy Singer was not at the first trial. Dateline was not involved at that point in this case. They got involved after Russ was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And I'm not trying to diminish anything that Dateline did. You know, they are a, a news organization. They uh, they brought attention to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the more attention this case got, potentially the more um, attention it was also getting at the appeal, at the appeals court versus something that just kind of slid through. But right. and they kind of make the argument in the second or second to last or last episode episode spoilers ahead that. <laughs> Pam Hupp, part of her seeking out someone, and inevitably that ended up being Louis Gumpenberger, was because of the pressure she was feeling about these episodes kept airing. There's another one coming up. She's trying to find someone now that Russ Faria, um, you know, has been released and exonerated of this crime to pin it on. And well, that, Russ, really, and him, that's but. and that's wrong. And that's, yeah. I mean, based on what the pro, what what the St. Charles County prosecuting attorney said at the time was, it was her killing of Lewis Gumpenberger was motivated by her fear of a reinvestigation of Betsy Faria's murder. Not, Not because Dateline right. was giving, you know. So, I mean, you got a couple of cases here where a news organization has inserted themselves into this story in a in a factually incorrect way, mm-hmm. trying to give themselves more prominence. And, and I mean, that's that's a real problem. If, if you don't have the Dateline brand on this and you just say, this is based on a new on a true story. Then you can take more liberties. But if but, Dateline is claiming to be at a trial they weren't at, they they had Kathy Singer at um, at the scene of Pam Hupp's arrest. Mm-hmm. That never happened. Pam Hupp was arrested as she and her husband were driving down the road. The only people that were there were was uh, Chris Hayes and Dave Sharp from Fox Two, who who were there at the very beginning of this. Okay, right. so they were at the first right. trial. So if Dateline wants to do this, if NBC wants to do this. Then and you want to you want a, somebody from the media there? Why not be accurate and give credit to the person who was originally there, to the guy who brought us in? There's just no yes. reason. There's no reason to pump yourself up. Dateline yeah. got plenty of episodes out of this. They got plenty of attention out of this and clicks and everything else. You don't need to lie about your role in the story, and that's what they did. And they even took it to the point, and maybe this is a detail. I, I caught this in one of the earlier episodes where Josh Duhamel is walking into the courtroom. And a, a male reporter, TV reporter, clearly with a two microphone, comes up and asks, <laughs> asks uh, Josh, as Jill Schwartz, you know, basically, you represent murderers, so how is Russell Faria not a murderer? Like, such an embarrassing question I hope no one has ever actually asked. <laughs> but Chris Hayes is from Channel 2. Right. So... That was the only actual number that I saw, other than like a number seven on another microphone later. But that we don't even have a number seven with, here. With the wrong Channel call 7. letters for this side of the Mississippi, <laughs> right? You know, so, it's, it's W, blah 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 instead of K, blah blah blah. You know, and this isn't even about, as you said, erasing the work of local journalists. It's about inserting yourself into a story in places that you had no, yeah, no real role. And that takes up, I would, you know, I think you could argue. 
a percentage of this show that could have been dedicated again to giving a full portrait of who these victims were instead of kind of defining them by the days that they were murdered. I mean, we basically only see them on those days with the exception, I think, of one maybe clip of Betsy from uh, Pam's daughter's wedding. And even Mm -hmm. that, I think you could argue, serves more to further characterize the character of Pam than it does Betsy. Yes. And and the... um you know, Betsy, we talked about this the first time around, and, and that that struck me also in the beginning of this series, how Betsy was very one-dimensional. And Lewis was kind of a complicated guy. I mean, he was, <laughs> by the accounts of several people that knew him, a jerk. Before, oh, I had not heard that. Before he got into this really traumatic car accident. Which was a driving while intoxicated yes. accident, where and, he and, was the driver. He was the driver, right. And and then he was pretty severely mentally and physically disabled after that. Which and, is so traumatic for a family to go through. And I, kind of childlike, really. Right. I mean, so you got this childlike adult mm-hmm. who who has been through this experience, and, and really his... His days at that point were kind of taking care of his own kids. I mean, mm-hmm. she picked him up shortly after he, I mean, he had he had uh, waited with the kids for their school bus and was like sitting outside of his apartment, maybe smoking when she pulls up. And, you know, you, you don't see any of that. Thank God they didn't do a campy treatment of Lewis Gumpenberger and his injuries. We were, we talked about being concerned about, and they, and, the, and I think they did an okay job of, of not making that horrible. Their yeah. treatment of him was, I agree, was good. And it also, that is a part of the story that I hadn't really thought of before, like that drive. After Pam Hupp picks up this random person off the road, the drive back to her house where she had to have seen how in, impossible this story would be. Her story is that she was that Louis Gumpenberger tried to abduct her. His disabilities made that impossible for him to physically be able to do, as the the miniseries also points out. And yet she drives forward. She continues with this this yeah. plan to frame Russell Faria. And that was actually the fourth. Louis was the fourth person she tried it with. Right. I mean, it, and, and I mean, I, you, everybody, you, we could have our little quibbles here and there with the series. But I mean, there's, there are some choices that, they made that I thought, you know, it's just goofy. And if you really want to portray Pam Hupp accurately, one of the things that's always struck me about this that I've talked about over, over, over and over again is that just that she was picking up random people. I mean, she stopped a guy at a gas station. She stopped a guy um, near Carol Alford's house, mm-hmm. which you saw in the miniseries, um, who was mowing a vacant lot or something and, and was like, hey, come on over. And he was too busy or something. So, like, Lewis was the fourth person that she tried to lure back to her house to shoot. And I mean, on that's a, bananas. To shoot yeah. on a piece of carpet that she had cut out previously. Right. And we don't, I don't know if that actually happened, like, basically in front of her husband. It seems like he was a background figure. And even in, if memory serves, uh, local news footage and photo- photos of that time, you see him with her. But I don't remember him ever giving any kind of public statement or wanting to seek out press attention the way certainly that it seemed for a minute Pam Hupp wanted to. Yeah, I mean, she would occasionally respond when she was going in and out of the court or something like that. Hi, Tammy. Right. I said hi. But he didn't, so. So cringe. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like we're talking about, I I thought the last episode was Zellweger's best acting. I thought she was great throughout, but I thought that the last episode really illustrated how monstrous Pam Hupp is. She really captured something there. I kind of struggled with with knowing the reality of who this woman is and what she has done, um, that is Pam Hupp, 
not Renee Zellweger. Um, <laughs> I struggled early in the show because she kind of was painted as more of a Karen. There's an episode where we have a scene with her at a gas station where she, I can I speak to the manager? Right. Kind of doing a Roseanne Barr, not a Pam Hutt voice, but um, not good at accents. Put that up there to our listeners. Uh, so I struggled with that very lighthearted tone of Pam Hupp or that more Karen, which is, you know, uh, problematic, but doesn't necessarily make someone a murderer or, you know, right. a calculated killer. And in the last episode, particularly the scene with Gumpenberger in the car, I really felt like Zellweger did a lot of like showing and not telling in her acting where in her face you could tell she was seeing that this is someone who was not capable of this crime but she's so far down the rabbit hole with it and she's already tried this on the show once we know three times and she just needs it to go forward you know she's on a timeline here right uh and there's no going back and i thought that was affecting acting i do wish that we had seen again more of gumpenberger i felt like they really did a lot of heavy lifting to not flesh him out as a person and I don't know if that was because there wasn't enough time um, put into how are we going to thoughtfully and compassionately portray this man on film but it was very brief his appearance and again it felt like it was a slight to him and to his family to not have done him more justice and there were a couple of things with the timeline that bothered me in the miniseries they show her entering her alfred plea which is a guilty plea where you where the person pleading doesn't actually admit guilt they admit the state has enough facts to prove them guilty to, no, could, to, yeah like basically it, i think that you could convict me at trial that's it but i'm not gonna say i did it so pam pleads to this in the miniseries um dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit with the uh, bandages on her neck as if it happened within minutes later yeah. within right. days of of her arrest where she tried to commit suicide and had to be hospitalized and that is not the case it happened two or three years later right. she looked much more like pam hupp did at the end of the miniseries with longer hair mm-hmm. that was salt and pepper and that bothered me because there there was a lot of time in there and there was a lot of back and forth and, and her attorneys the, the were putting death up penalty the death I mean, penalty was the involved prosecutors yes. were seeking the death penalty and that's probably what induced the plea and there were you know de- her defense attorneys were putting up a pretty vigorous defense and right. and saying we don't want certain evidence to be presented they didn't want betsy faria mentioned at all they didn't want um, her mother mentioned it all. Like they, they were going in and, to, and with a really vigorous defense. It wasn't just a, you know, let's throw up our hands and plead. Yeah. Well, and, and then you get back to sort of the creative choices and why, you know, why don't they add an episode? And they can address some of these things. What mm-hmm. difference does what difference does I it make to this NBC? Could be eight like it's episodes. all content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right. all content at this point. You know, they're all desperate for content. What's the difference between seven or eight episodes? <laughs> well, um, and if if I were St. Charles County prosecutor, uh, I'm going to blank on his l- Tim first Lomar. name. Tim Lomar. Thank you very much. If I were Tim Lomar, I would be a little bit upset. He had a a big role. Oh yeah. In that case, that you know is the only reason why Pam Hupp is in prison right now. It was a plea deal, I believe, to get her to an Alford plea. I mean, it was, we'll take the death penalty off the table, you know, and yeah. And and after that plea, he, I think it was either after the plea or the sentencing, he sat down and really kind of said, like, here's, I mean, he called it this amateurish effort. It it was after the plea. And that was one of the first times that a lot of people heard that 911 call, which in the miniseries is even less clunky than it sounds in real life. Yeah, it, it. It's yeah. horrifying to listen to. Right. It really and, is. and and 
I mean, at least that, I don't know if this, you know, I don't know if the, the detective was listening to it in the car on the way there or something, but, but initially, you know, that really kind of flagged investigators from the beginning because it just didn't, they didn't buy it. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't sound realistic with these weird pauses and her acting was bad and her acting was terrible. Yeah. 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 But, it, you know, and again, it's so sad because it just shows you how cold blooded and in all of this, essentially at the end of it for money. Right. Um, Basically. Yes. And not not that much money. Not to say that, it you know, it's not nothing, but it's certainly there's not enough that you could ever have to commit murder and one hundred and fifty thousand dollar life insurance. It's just hard. the mind, you know, cannot my mind cannot wrap around it. Well, um, and well, I, I found a lot of the handling of money in the miniseries confusing. Almost, I didn't understand, frankly, what Pam Hupp was doing with what the, money. What is the bag at the end? They never return to that, right? She stuffs a bunch of money in a bag in the last episode, right before the Louis Gumpenberger murder, I think. Or no, it's after, after. but before she gets arrested, leaves a check for Travis for one hundred and twenty-two thousand right. dollars. Which and then something... does she bury money? Like, are we supposed to know what happened to that money? I think the implication is that you know she knew what was going to happen. It's weird because it's because they they make her out to be so confident about her ability to to get away with this, and maybe that's because of her you know the situation the first time around in Lincoln County. Assuming he she did it, <laughs> assuming she, she very, did it, she was very successful. But but you know there's this switch where she apparently believes that it's all crashing down, and so she's going to. The implication is she's giving this money maybe to her son or somebody else or hiding it or whatever. I. I don't recall any evidence of like a big shift of money at some point. Yeah, it was really in, strange. In, the, in, in Bone Deep, they talk about how they did, Pam Hupp did write a check to her son for quite a bit of money, but I don't remember anything in that book or in your coverage well, about burying money. Her, I felt like it was in contrast to what her and her husband had been talking about in either the previous episode or at the top of the last episode, which was that they had run out of money and right. that they were struggling. You know, they were house poor now because they were flippers who could not sell the homes that they had recently flipped because of her infamy. Right. And in um, previous episodes, she's using a hairdryer to dry off money that she pulled out of a swamp in Florida. Oh, yeah. And then to, she's ironing money. Like, and it why is, are we talking about this without any evidence of what happened in Florida? I there's mean, no so evidence strange. of it. I mean, and it, the, the entire handling of cash money throughout the entire miniseries made no sense to me. And it yeah. was presented without context. I mean, there was, there was a bag of cash that she brought to the prosecutor at one point before the second trial, to, as if to say, like, here it is. I haven't done anything to with it. Right. But, you know, it's very bizarre to bring, you know, a bag full of cash to a prosecutor. And then, you know, I think that was that alarmed some people and everything else. But, I mean, there was, you know, at one point, Chris Hayes and I tried to look into, has she been the beneficiary of a life insurance policy before from some random person or friend? But there's just no way, out, if, you, if you're outside the insu- insurance industry, to look it up. You know, again, you've got that Dateline connection. You've got that connection to a news organization. Can you really sort of make implications about, you know, she's cozied up to this elderly woman in Florida. We we see in these earlier episodes. And right. then, she's, then she grabs a bag of wet cash out of the swamp or something. And what, what else are we supposed to take from it than she did it before? But there's no evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, there's, and, I mean there's, they basically, uh, you know, they breadcrumb that very intensely where they even have her saying to her husband, well, the family now, they think I was trying to get her money and we just got to move back to Missouri. And he's like, what? And <laughs> again, to your point, this is all 
in my, to my knowledge, it sounds like that's true. Um, projection. This is maybe there. I mean, they did live in Florida. Maybe there's some of this is true, but a lot of it is unverified. And again, I just felt like in only six episodes, this is time they could have been dedicating to Betsy Freya's life, to Louis Gumpenberger's life. And right. just like we said in the last podcast, you don't have to make Pam Hupp more evil. She is an evil person just solely based on what she did to Lewis Gumpenberger right. and, and in planning that crime who uh, yes exactly oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to stop myself we before I, I don't know going. where we are in time but we we, we, we got to talk about I feel like I'm doing a commercial for Dateline but uh, Dateline is going to talk to Leah Cheney the Lincoln or, County prosecutor Lincoln County prosecutor former Leah Askey Leah Askey who, and, who the Lincoln County prosecutor who prosecuted Russell Faria and which then that conviction was overturned later by another right. judge yeah, and, and lost on re-election to Mike Wood. And yes. we will talk uh, to Joel Schwartz here in a little bit, but um, Joel has often said, but for the botched prosecution of Russell Faria and the fact that they were ignoring Pam Hupp, Lewis Gumpenberger would still be alive. And, and in the excerpts that Dateline has put out at this point, she's saying, no, there's no blood on my hands, you know, and, and they don't have a ton of that information out there, but it appears that she's saying that there weren't, you know, I, I guess she's standing by the initial prosecution of Russ Faria. Hmm. So I, I think I think the video was something along the lines of it wasn't I wasn't investigating it. I presented the investigation that was given to me. Right. But of course, the prosecutor's role is to look at the evidence and say, you know, there's no case here. Either this is garbage or it isn't. And and, you know, she was an inexperienced prosecutor. She's an, an elected prosecutor without mm-hmm. a lot of murder experience and, and in a in a place that did not have right. a lot of still mur- does not have a lot right. of murders so exactly it's kind of a perfect storm of things there right and, i mean and, it, it, if you would if you had worked in one of the more uh one of the busier jurisdictions in missouri and had handled some of these cases and stuff would be it, i'm sure it would have been a very different prosecution yes but she did not have a lot of experience and you know say what you want about the case that was brought to her she's got the decision to make is this you know mm-hmm. do they have the right person is the evidence you know yes. they have an, they have an ethical obligation to look at that evidence and say you know this is a prosecutable prosecutable case beyond that she made statements in her prosecution that were way beyond what the evidence said i mean right. she accused four or five people who were Russ's alibi witnesses right. of lying. And that's... And like participate, essentially be participating like participating in a murder conspiracy. To murder, yeah, in right. her closing argument. Which presented, is... Presented the, 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 the first jury with kind of multiple theories of the crime. Like, you can believe this or you can believe that. And also potentially withheld evidence, exculpatory evidence, of the photos. of photos of the crime scene that showed no luminol exposure, which would have been evidence of uh, blood cleanup, basically. So the, there were actions that she took as a prosecutor that went beyond the investigative issues. And I mean, that, that was an issue in, a, in the lawsuit. Again, right. You know, the, the lawsuit which that Russell None Freya. of the lawsuits were mentioned... In the miniseries. I think only the um, Betsy, Betsy Freya's daughter, obviously Betsy Freya's well, daughter's one. case right. against um, Pam Hupp for the life insurance money. But for example, Louis Gumpenberger's mother sued Pam Hupp and Russell Faria sued basically the investigative team and Leah Askey for right. mi- investigative misconduct. Or Yeah, prosecutors are typically immune from that kind of thing unless you overstep your role. So their, right. their theory of that case was she had... She had acted as investigator in some of this, you know, was directing the investigation Mm -hmm. and therefore lost her prosecutorial 
And there, there was a settlement in that case. It never went to trial. She, she was at, she was dismissed out before the settlement. But yeah, oh, there great. was Thank a settlement you. with, um, you know, on behalf of the investigators or whatever. Is this, and I, I know that in a long career of reporting, is this the weirdest story you've covered? Oh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's been like quirky ones and weird ones. But I think in terms of length and breadth of twists and turns. Right. I mean, you know, and numbers of bodies and stuff. I mean, I mean, I'd be fascinated to know if there's somebody in Florida. There's been, mm. you know, there's been talk of that and everything else. There was this other situation with, you know, at one point people accused Pam of running a scam, like going door to door, raising money for cancer and none of that money. You know, so, I mean, it was like, I don't know. There's a couple of odd things about her life. I'd love to talk to her. I mean, I'd love to sit down with her at some Maybe. point and just be like, tell, tell me everything. You've got... There's no downside. You're in you're in prison right. for life got without parole. Right. Even if you're convicted of a of a crime that's death penalty eligible and you get the death penalty, you know, uh, realistically it's never going to happen because it takes so long. So, which, so what do you have to lose? Which also she has been now charged with Bessie Faria's death. Is the death penalty on the table in that case or has a decision yet to be made? Yeah, yeah, the prosecutor wants to wants to seek the death penalty. Okay. You know, there's there's some factors in Missouri that allow it and and one is I'm going to botch this, but it's it, but it basically comes down to like the egregious nature of it, you know, okay. or if there's a financial motive or something like that. And she she ticks, uh, according to the uh, theory of the prosecution, she ticks a, at least two of those boxes. And that case is still pending. Yeah, and because well, you know, anytime you say death penalty, then everything just goes into super slow mo, right? Because you know you're you got multiple lawyers on the defense, and you, they are going to just it's a grind at that point just like just like lewis's murder was i mean you know what you said earlier about like she's sitting in court with bandages on her neck in the miniseries in the miniseries yeah um i mean it it takes forever yes so who knows how that's going to turn out now with the miniseries and more dateline episodes and all the attention pam hop has already received in this podcast which obviously tens of people listen to (laughs) yeah (laughs) Hello to our tens of listeners. Yeah, thank you very much. But what I mean to say is, with all this media attention on this, it, and it's a death penalty case, that makes finding a jury right. so much harder, yeah. especially in Lincoln County, where this it, it is a small town, and people know other people, and um, you know no one lives in isolation. So just trying to find a jury in there is going to be really hard. And, and what may happen is they bringing a jury from someplace else or they right. you know they try to look for a comparable community in terms of population and stuff so you know they're some, not going to come to st louis you mean no so maybe like a suburb or exurb of kansas city or maybe mm-hmm. further south and i don't know i don't know if jefferson county matches lincoln county probably not but yeah well i know we're gonna have joel schwartz uh, russell free as attorney on here soon um i guess we can share last kind of thoughts of the miniseries one thing i saw one of our uh, readers on twitter say was that they found this a nice departure from the recent like scam culture uh mm. true crime or not true crime but uh documentaries and miniseries based on real events that have been permeating our streaming services of, of late 
And I, the more I think about it, the more we've talked about it, I wonder if this story captures imagination, not just because of the truly, I mean, horrific nature of the crimes, but because Pam Hupp, it is a scam. I mean, at the at the bottom of it all, these terrible, terrible uh, murders were committed uh, kind of in a domino effect for money. Uh, right. So which- it is sort of, you know, true crime merging with the scam culture that has become a little bit more a part of popular culture in recent years. Yeah, I will say I'm I'm a fan of true crime. I um, enjoy reading our stories about crimes that happen in our area, which I guess is kind of the quintessential true crime if it's news coverage of it. But I did not enjoy... I, I watched the miniseries for this podcast and for um, being able to talk about it, but I did not enjoy some of the questions that it, it raised for me in terms of these are, are real people that we're talking about, and they they are saying in various ways, we were not considered in this entire process. Mm-hmm. And watching you know the showrunner tweet about the show and, and how you know this was true and this was true and that was true, and then just not even mentioning when things were very clearly not true like that Mm -hmm. that bothered me a little bit um so it made me think again about how much i like true crime and and why it is kind of like a oh thank goodness this didn't happen to me well and i think to to our your point beth i mean it true crime when we watch it we are usually very detached from it this is a case that hit really close to home robert you covered it we have talked about it on multiple episodes now and it's touched local families so the way that we consume things when they're very far away from us and we don't think about the real people who are involved in them this was a chance to reflect on that definitely yes and you know i i there's a small temptation for me to say like okay this a lot more people are exposed to this story via the miniseries but then you know, you're exposed to this bastardized version of it. And is, is that a good thing? Is it, and, and, you know, is it, is it good to be exposed to it, even if it was accurate? You know, maybe it, I think there's some lessons in there. There's some lessons about uh, inexperienced prosecutors and inexperienced uh, elected judges and things like that. But wrongful convictions. Wrongful convictions, mm-hmm. right. But then, but then you think of the cost to the families and you think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I love crime too. I cover it. It's fascinating yeah. to yes. me. And, and those stories are really interesting. Um, and in a lot of crime, you wonder, well, how did this person, how did the, the suspect, you know, how did the suspect become the villain? And and there is an idea of what pushes people over that edge. Mm-hmm. And I think there are there's some works of fiction that try to address that. And even there's some documentaries that try to address that. And this didn't either. This was... No, sensationalistic yeah. and we never really get to the bottom of pam hub no i mean i guess it's just, and we never will to be honest unless yeah. she decides to talk and says here's how patrick I of the st louis post dispatch yes please do but we're just not going to be able to get there and yeah. i don't know that we get there even in other cases i mean if it's if it's if this was made for pure entertainment then i think that leaves you open to a lot of questions about about why and the cost to the families and mm-hmm. stuff versus mm-hmm. versus a Dateline thing, you know, where, where Dateline is like, here's what happened. Right. And the miniseries is here's what sort of happened. And we've, we've got, I mean, the New York times had a, had a piece the other day about, you know, the sort of the explosion in true crime stories and some of it is laziness and some of it is, you know, following trends, but they, a guaranteed hit. basically. Right. Yeah. But they did compare, they, they were talking about this miniseries, and they said it, it seemed like they were shooting for dark comedy like Fargo, and what they ended up with was more like Saturday Night Live. 
Yeah, yeah. that's perfectly said. Yes. It is not in any way a dark comedy like Fargo, which even as it was a dark comedy, at least respected its characters. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. didn't shy away from the brutality of its character that its characters were committing. You know, I think that's the other piece is that for a lot of reasons, we can't show Pam Hupp committing the things she's accused of ha- having done. But I do think we can try try to capture more of the menace that people who knew her describe her as. You know, again, mm-hmm. we at the top talked about Janet Meyer's response and in, in public quote to the series. And she says Pam Hupp was not friendly. And in my view, yes, in the show, up until that very last episode, she walks a line between being kind of a Karen and being like a fake friendly uh, persona. Right. And I don't think that's how most people who interacted with her would characterize her. I think you summed it up very well when you talked about respect for care, respect for the characters. I, I don't feel like the respect for the characters was there as it should have been, particularly, I mean forget about the victims of crime for a second, just respect for all characters. I mean, early on, I think people were, were critical of this because they're like, you know, you're making fun of people in the Midwest, but, you know, you're also making fun of these people and this story, and mm-hmm. there were there were a lot of victims in this. Yes. And also, no one in St. Louis or St. Charles says Lake St. Louis. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring it up. I I had to bring it up. I thought, Robert, your assessment of that was very good. Because I'm like, I think it's giving too much credit maybe to Hupp. It's giving uh, way too much credit to Hupp. uh, In the moment, but that it's because she was impersonating a Dateline producer from Chicago. Right. So maybe would that person, you know, unintentionally mispronounce like St. Louis. Pam Pam Hupp's, you know, sort of characterization of what a a Chicago person would... would do in St. Louis, how they would pronounce things, you know, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I also know. can't still place, is that how, she, I guess that is how she talks. It's there, a very difficult accent to pin down. I read something about how Renee Zellweger kind of struggled with that accent because because it isn't, it isn't like a stereotypical regional, regional accent, yeah. accent that she's got. And maybe it's because she grew up here and lived in Florida and having moved around myself, you sometimes adopt a little bit of you know, the accent where you live. I could do a pretty good Southern accent, but I won't do it now. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, if I have a couple beers, I start to have, like, have a, you know, a little bit of a Texas drawl. Yeah, there you go. I can't I can't do accents. I'm so bad at it. No, <laughs> I, I, I mean, earlier I, I tried and failed, so we won't, don't need to do that again. If I move, then I think I would be able to, yeah. to pick up the accent, but I would still, uh, yeah, it'd be bad. We are jo- joined by Joel Schwartz, who is the attorney for Russell Faria. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. So, I guess to, to get right to the point, what did you think about the miniseries? I found it to be entertaining. I found it to be that train wreck that you couldn't look away from. Uh, many, right. many people who I spoke to didn't, they were not enamored with the first episode, but as they continued to watch, they could not get enough of Pam and were just, everybody's wishing that the series would continue. We kind of wrestled with uh, a couple of things. And one is, well, one was like, why not do another episode or two? Because there, there, there were some things left out. But the other one is when you decide to do like a based on story instead of, I mean, you, you know, NBC could have done a documentary. It's, it's too long a story for Dateline, for any, any Dateline, you know, of two or three hours. It's too long a story. There have been too many twists and turns. You could do a documentary when you choose to do kind of a more entertainment thing 
that, that really kind of raises some interesting questions about how you characterize people and, and the, the, the things that are accurate and the things that aren't. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. I don't think a documentary would satisfy it. I think you would need at least an eight to 10 part docu-series. Um, Dateline has obviously done, this will be their sixth episode and it includes nine hours on this case and they still have to cut things out. Uh, regarding what, on a personal note, speaking with Josh, they did film the emotional arc or the frustrations that I went through, which I think people would empathize with and find to be entertaining. Um, but remember, this was Pam Zellweger, Pam Zellweger. This was Pam Hupp's story. It was through the eyes and mind of Pam Hupp. And it was sort of a Renee Zellweger vehicle. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. So, so I think that's the view that we saw it from and through her crazy, crazy mind and crazy eyes that uh, her viewpoint. Yeah. Well, and I thought that, uh, Joel, I thought that Josh and Renee particularly had uh, put in amazing performances. I really felt like Josh understood, to your point, your frustrations. What was it like to see yourself on screen and as portrayed by Josh Dumel? I've been asked that quite a bit and it's, it's very surreal. I did actually get used to it. What I never got used to was Judy Greer, the woman playing Leah Askey and her, the way she would address me with Joel and he looks like Tom <laughs> Hanks from Splash, things like that became, I, I had no idea those things were going to be like that. And that's what became odd. Well, I mean, if somebody's gotta be saying it, Judy Greer is not a bad person to be saying it. Uh, I thought she did a great job too, but I feel like her Leah Askey was a little bit less tonally serious than maybe Josh Jumel's version of you. Well, the, the problem I had with the Leah Askey character is it seemed as if she struggled slightly with Pam Hub's version of things, whereas that was not the case. Leah Askey was in hook, line, and sinker. Um, and Leah Askey was played by someone who just seems to have an engaging personality. And unfortunately, Judy Greer is just so likable and it comes across. <laughs> um, I don't know how others view Leah Askey, but it sure wasn't likable in my experience. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I, I personally love Judy Greer as the actress. I found her nails on a chalkboard as Leah Askey to all, for all the reasons you mentioned the sing-songy, juvenile way that she spoke about people and in a professional setting, you know, very distracting. But again, tonally, I felt like that was meant to signal to the audience something about Leah Askey versus the more serious approach that they gave you. And kind of to Robert's larger point, we're making a lot of us, the show is making a lot of assumptions about characters or guiding audience toward characters when they make those character choices. Uh, we are on the same page. I agree with you 100%. And her voice and everything was nailed on a chalkboard. And Leah Askey doesn't have that voice. Uh, and the things that she did throughout the case were the equivalent of nails on a chalkboard, though. No love lost between a defense attorney and a prosecuting <laughs> attorney, obviously. Jill, do you have any misgivings about participating in the miniseries? No, I, I don't have any misgivings. I, uh, I understand what they did and how and why they did what they did. I am hoping in the future that there will be additional information. Uh, I always believe that even when they started, that there was an oversaturation of the story. 
clearly I was wrong talking with others about doing some additional projects regarding the story. And because my book, Bone Deep, mm-hmm. is actually completely different from what they aired throughout the miniseries, uh, I believe that there is a realistic shot that we will get some other projects off the ground. And the, the belief I had about oversaturation couldn't have been more wrong. People just want more and more and more of this. That is another thing that we talked about, kind of with true crime. It really does seem to be a trend right now. Do you enjoy true crime? And did this miniseries change your perception of some other true crime entertainment? Uh, I've never been a fan of true crime other than the true crime that when people hire me to defend them, that's real true crime. Yes. Um, I, uh, it's entertaining to me and I'm enjoying part of it. Whereas, for example, I'm speaking in two weeks at CrimeCon. Uh, I'm speaking to a 1500 seat auditorium and my speech is already sold out. Uh, it's oh, wow. just. And here I didn't even know there was a crime con. I, I should have known there was <laughs> a crime doesn't need this knowledge. Yeah, I, I may not need this knowledge. <laughs> she's going she's gonna to try to get a scalp ticket to that talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, Angel, I wanted to. Was, that's true. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit too about the way that the show, before it came out, there was a lot of talk about how it was going to shine a light on wrongful convictions and obviously your role in defending someone who was wrongfully convicted. How did you feel in the end that it did getting that message out there? Um, In reading all the comments about the show, it it seems to have scratched the surface a bit, just like it sort of scratched the surface of the story. It's really angered people and everyone wants more and more. What really happened? I mean, I would love for people to see what Leah Askey's initial closing argument was. I would love for them to see the video of the real Russ uh, and the video of the alibi witnesses because it's it's truly crazy. The charges were brought. Um, I knew he didn't do it. I knew there was not a chance that a jury would convict him until they did, even without the evidence that they should have heard. Uh, they shouldn't have convicted him. Now, given and I have to give that jury a little bit of a break, at least because the judge was not did not allow them to hear any of the evidence regarding Pam Hupp and all of her lies and whereabouts and motive and anything of that nature. So with that said, it's um, it's shed a light on wrongful convictions and the human frailties in prosecutors. But I think that's all it did was just a, a light. It needs to go much further. I realize that I'm asking a defense attorney this. Did the Russell Faria case change your perception of police investigations and, and prosecuting attorneys? I would venture a guess that no criminal defense attorney has ever encountered anything like this. I've encountered corrupt police, but then I'll have a prosecutor who can step in and do the right thing or fix it or present the evidence in, the, in its entirety. Or if not, I'll have a judge who steps in. If I got a prosecutor who I think is stepping over the bounds or for lack of a better term, corrupt, because there's remedies for this. And at the very, very least, I'll have a jury who can fix it. Every stopgap failed in this system. And everything that we encountered was so over the top, including the proof of Russ's innocence. It's not like I've had alibi defenses. I've had mom say son was with me. I've had wife say husband was with me. He was documented on a cell site for alibi witnesses were interviewed while he was still in custody the next morning. I mean, they were taken, interviewed three times on video in three separate police stations. And none of the police had any issues at all 
with what they had said had occurred. Thankfully, he stopped at Arby's on his way home, and we had a timestamp receipt from that. And all they did was decided Russ Faria killed his wife, and they just kept, kept taking larger and larger square pegs, trying to fit them in smaller and smaller round holes, and it just couldn't get done. Dingline is uh, airing something tomorrow night, Friday, on this. And I've seen a little bit about, uh, they're talking to Leah Cheney. I, I don't know if that's the first time that she's talked to them, but she has not. I know early on she wouldn't talk to him. But anyway, she was, she was asked, like, do you have blood on your hands because of Louis Gumpenberger's death? And she says no and basically says um, she's not responsible for that. And she seems to be saying that, you know, seemed to be backing up the initial prosecution of Resferia. And I don't know if you have any more information about what she told Dayline. I have a little bit more information. Um, put it this way. They uh, tried to interview her. She refused. I had, a, and the show had been put together. I had a very, very large role in this particular airing. However, once Leah decided to speak to them, my role was cut down dramatically. And I, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that she spoke to them. Um, Keith Morrison, as well as Kathy Singer, had some choice comments. And I have not seen the episode. I've only seen the preview as you have. And she seems to be saying, well, she does say she'll put her morals up against anybody. Uh, it's not going to be much of a contest there. She also seems to be defending her role in this prosecution. And it's going to be interesting to see how she in fact defends this, how she defends this, because there's just simply if I was trying at defending her role, I would lose that fight. I mean, early on, she was saying we got the right guy, even after he was acquitted at the retrial. Does she still believe that that entire prosecution was legitimate and that they had the right person? My understanding is she defends the prosecution. She says that there was nothing ever brought to her to indicate any, anyone other than Russ Faria had anything to do with this. And that couldn't be further from the truth because... I'm the one who brought stuff to her and I continued to bring it to her and she fought tooth and nail to keep any information regarding that individual out of the trial. Well, if there was no information to indicate someone else had something to do with this or certainly may have, um, or she was never brought anything like that, why would she fight to keep it out if she truly believed that she could prove Russ Faria did it? Um, so what she say is a ridiculous statement and it goes so far as just an out and out lie. Yeah, that's so interesting. I felt like in the miniseries, again, it's a lot of leading the audience because some of these things they can't, with a firm conclusion, say one way or another. But it felt like near the end of the, the miniseries, the thing about Pam, that the Judy Greer character as Leah Askey was maybe starting to see that Pam Huff was capable of committing this crime, of murdering Betsy Faria. Um, I, you know, there's the scene in the park where Pam and I, you know, I don't know if any of this ever happened. It's all liberties taken by NBC, but the scene in the park where Pam comes up to Leah Askey and basically says, I know where you live, um, and is kind of shaking her down, you know, that kind of intonated that maybe she was having second thoughts. It sounds like maybe not. What I can tell you is I don't know the contact they had. I've heard rumors of different meetings they've had, um, I do know that during the course of the second trial, Pam was part of the prosecution team. She went into and out of the courthouse with their team. You would see her do that. She did not go through security. And for the life of me, I can't understand why they teamed up. 
and why she was allowed to do that. Uh, I don't know the, what the relationship was after that, but Leah Askey is still out there defending her actions and up until just recently, apparently defending Pam Hub. Um, and yet she didn't call her in the second trial. She, somebody had to realize that the constant evolution of her story would make her a ridiculous witness on the stand, wouldn't it? It was one of the, it was the hardest decision of that trial was whether or not I should call it because I had her under subpoena. Just, I wanted to keep her out of the courtroom. And I had about an eight hour video recorded cross-examination to disprove everything she said from beginning to end to show her lies. So the decision not to call her was made after my last cross-examination where I was able to go through all of her lies with one of the lead officers investigating the case. Um, I agree with what you said, Robert, about her not calling her. I don't know that she thought she was lying. Um, I just think that maybe she believed it made a poor cross-examination at that point in time. But what you're talking about is not calling your main witness. She's the person who could time the murder. She's the person who was last with her and she's the person who dropped her off. Um, I think that would give pause to any trier of fact. And I believe that was part of what Judge Omer was referring to when he said in his verdict that this investigation raised more questions than answers. How did Leah believe Pam, though? Because, you know, at the end there, Pam says, oh, by the way, we are, you know, I had a, a sexual relationship with Betsy. All of a sudden she's saying that. And then she's like, oh, yeah, uh, I forgot until just now that I saw this car lurking outside the house and Russ was probably inside it. Like, you know, I mean, there were just, there are all of these things that just popped up out of the blue would have bolstered, would have bolstered the case maybe if it had happened in the very beginning. Brain issues. Remember she, Pam had problems remembering things. Well, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And again, I think it's just in the show, I, at least the way I watched it, again, a lot of this could be up for interpretation. Maybe others didn't feel that way. I felt like as the show went on, not just ASCII, but certainly those in her office and that eventually ASCII kind of last come to the realization that at least they can't trust fully what Pam is telling them, that there is more there than it being due to some sort of, you know, brain damage that happened years ago. Um, They see more maliciousness there. I don't believe that there's any real brain damage. Her injury would change that would fit her purposes. Um, It went from her drop foot to her bad leg, to her bad back, to her brain injury, and then it would go back down. Um, It's just whatever would fit the, she was pathological. So whatever would fit the answer became her injury at that point in time. Uh, In response to your earlier statement, I I think people in her office became disgusted with this. Uh, I've been told, including Mike Wood, who now is prosecuting Pam, um, but I've been told many stories like that, which takes me to briefly the CD containing the 132 photographs that I received from the Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney's Office that I am certain Leah Askey had no idea that I had. Uh, I don't know where they came from and I don't know who sent them, but it was they were sent from that office. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask you about that character in the miniseries of the, you know, within the prosecutor's office. It was, I mean, certainly the implication was that she had provided them to you. Uh, you don't know. There's no- there's no Tina that I knew of, but it's possible Leah just forwarded those to me and did what many people are and lazy and never looked at them. 
Uh, all I can say is they came from that office. So what, what has this meant for you professionally? I'm getting calls from all over the country. I got a call this morning from Cincinnati and I got a call from New York and it's uh, people are all attempting to tell me something similar regarding corruption. I simply, there's just not enough of me to handle this or enough of my office and the cost to take on something of this nature in another jurisdiction would be astronomical. So yeah, the phone hasn't stopped. The emails haven't stopped. I'm getting congratulatory, complimentary emails and calls from all over. Um, and I'm getting from many police, which is interesting, saying that they are, that I am glad, they're glad that I was able to bring this to light because people like this disgust them and make a bad name for their profession. What's that conversation like where someone says, you know, I'm the Russ Faria of Cleveland, or was it Cincinnati? You know, and then you have to say, well, I just, I can't. Um, unfortunately, it's been going on for myself and my partner, Scott, and Matt for years. We just, because the, the nature of the beast here is I'm so personally involved in all of my cases or as many as I can be, there's just not enough, frankly, of me or my partners to go around. So you, if you take on everything, then you do a poor job. And I'm not willing to do that. That uh, another thing that struck me in the in this last, in the last episode of the miniseries is that you know Lewis gets killed and they call Russ or probably you. And you know, was it you? You see Russ go through that same process where he's like, I don't want to be in, I don't want to stay in the police station because last time this happened, I you know da da da. Did three years. Was that you know pretty uh, pretty accurate there? Yeah, with the exception of he was a little uh, scared going in. I kept assuring him we're, it's fine. He's not a suspect. Um, he wasn't in Florida at the time, as they depicted in the series. He was here, but he had, you know, we gave him, they checked a cell site. They checked with the people he was with. They did very thorough investigation to show he couldn't have been a suspect. The whole thing about that, that frightened me. And it was, I shudder to think, had Pam committed that crime in Lincoln County, what may have happened. Because Lee at that point was still the prosecutor. And the evidence against Russ and Matt was probably better than the evidence that it was in the first case. At least it was a note on the guy. And Pam was describing a guy who dropped her off to be Russ. Dropped right. Lewis Cumberberg off. She just picked the wrong jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. She picked a lot of wrong things, but yeah. I mean, Pam, Pam is not right. And that's why it's so frightening because it was the the case in Troy against the, where Betsy was murdered is as simplistic to solve as the case was with Lewis Kumpenberger. Well, and I know you were asked this at the time, but what is your reaction to the Alfred plea that Huff entered? You know, as an attorney, have you had clients enter that type of plea? I uh, I have. Every criminal defense attorney has. And there's a time and a place for it. I don't think I've ever been allowed to do it on a murder. And I was surprised. And I think, the, unfortunately, what happened is, I don't want to say Tim Lomar overstepped his bounds in asking for the death penalty, but the cost and what it takes to get that is incredible. So I was surprised that they cut the deal and allowed her to do an Alfred plea. Had he simply charged her with murder first, it would be much simpler to simply go through that trial and convict her. Now, Mike Wood, as part of the motive for the Betsy Faria, it's not motive, I mean uh, consciousness of guilt part 
of the trial is going to be able to use that. But because she didn't say she was guilty, he's going to have to use more evidence than he would have ordinarily had to do. Joel, do you have anything you'd like to, any thoughts you'd like to leave us with about the miniseries or about the real life events as they're moving forward? <laughs> no, um, but I appreciate you having me. And uh, the, the thing that highlights the best is uh, to give a, a cheap prompt is if people will read Bone Deep, they will get a tremendous understanding of what occurred here. So thanks for having me guys. And Robert, it's always a pleasure. 